Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hey guys, and welcome to Trainer Talks and Tales. My name is Tess and I'm joined by Daisy. Hi Tess, I want to know all about your week. How has your week been Tess and do you have anything for us today? I've had a really good week, thank you. It's uh, Monday that we're recording this on and I had a great weekend as usual. Uh, but you wouldn't bloody believe it, Daisy, but I have something to bring to the table that isn't just what I've been doing or something about a kite flying above me. Ooh, I, <laughs> I saw this awesome video on my Facebook this week of uh, some awesome macapod keepers at Wildlife Sydney Zoo. Their names are Michaela and Jessica and they were doing voluntary bagging of macropods so they have these western gray kangaroos choosing to participate in their healthcare by stepping into these bags the keepers then pick up the bags hold it uh for uh, quite a while actually and place them back down and the macropod will just back out slowly and be reinforced and it was so cool i have never seen anything like it so that's my recommendation to check out that video so maybe we can add it to the show notes yeah, that's amazing. You don't often see, I guess, like a lot of macropod training. So that's really cool to see that it's coming through. And I definitely want to check that out for sure. Yeah, you would love it. Uh, it. It was really, really cool. But anyway, how about you? How was your week? Do you have any recommendations for us? Oh, my week was fabulous. I just got back from a fantastic weekend up in Townsville, celebrating two of our great friends getting married. And I went up with one of my best friends, Adele, got to spend a heap of time with her, which was awesome, and her partner and a lot of our other good friends. And we went to Magnetic Island, which I've never been to before. So I'm not sure if you've been test, but it is beautiful. We saw heaps of koalas. We went on some late night walks to try and find some death adders, but we weren't overly lucky with that one, unfortunately. But we saw heaps of really cool birds, um, blue wing kookaburras, which are one of my favorites, which is awesome. And then obviously a long trip home. So we did drive there and back. So about 14 hours drive to and from. Um, but on the way back today, we saw an emu. It's the first time I've ever seen a wild emu, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. And we stopped um, along the river to have a look for crocs. And we saw some croc eyes in the dark, which was really cool. So heaps of wildlife that we saw over the weekend while celebrating love with a couple of drinks, which was a lot of fun. So yeah, I don't have a particular recommendation apart from if you haven't been to Magnetic Island, I would definitely recommend that. Yeah, I saw your stories. It was incredible, full of wildlife and uh, good time. So I would like to go there for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's always a good trip when it's with friends, plus heaps of wildlife and heaps of wildlife chat as well. When you're surrounded by zookeepers, it's always a good conversation too. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Tess, today's episode is a little bit different to normal. Last week, we chatted all about snakes. And this week, we're going to be chatting all about birds and bats. And we don't have a third person with us today, Tess, as we thought, who better to talk about birds and bats with than, of course, yourself, Tess. Tess has been working with raptors for over 10 years and has so much knowledge. So, Tess, I'm keen to get straight into it. 
Tess, are you excited to be on the other side of the microphone? I am. I'm also a little bit scared, I will admit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know well more than anyone else that we always start our episodes with a fast five and there is no exception with you today. So are you good if we get straight into that one? Yes, but I kind of secretly wish I asked you these first so I could reply a little bit faster. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, we're going to get straight into it. Okay, number one, barking owl or barn owl? Barking owl. Favourite sandwich filling? Salad. (laughs) Favourite zoo you visited? Singapore. I would agree with that one. Good call. Um, Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Harry Potter. And Tess, what is your favourite podcast? Train Talks and Tales. (laughs) Good job. I like (laughs) Now, Tess, our (laughs) listeners would absolutely love to hear a little bit more about Raptors. So I wondered if you could start off today with telling them a little bit more about what it's like working with them and what a day in the life of Tess does look like. Oh, well, first of all, thank you, Daisy. Um, so I've been working at Lone Pine, as you mentioned, for 10 years and working with raptors. Sorry, I've been working at Lone Pine for 12 years, but working with raptors for the last 10. It is so rewarding working with raptors. They're very intelligent, very food focused. We have 14 individuals in our collection at Lone Pine, eight different species, half of which have come in with injuries from the wild and are deemed unreleasable. So two shows a day demonstrating their natural behaviors, lots of training, lots of fun. I love it. Awesome. And do you actually use the same birds in the shows every day or do you change it up? We try to keep it varied uh, in terms of what species will be in the show and this will keep it varied for the birds but also for regular guests. They'll fly six or seven days a week and we'll have one day flying, uh, sorry, one day where there's no flying whatsoever and that's what we call a lay day. So the reason we do this is because wild raptors will have a very varied diet but also amount of food. So For example, a wedge-tailed eagle may catch a small rabbit consistently for a few days and be light enough to keep flying. And then one day they come across a a roo carcass and they will gorge themselves. So their crop is so full they won't be able to fly the next day. And that's what we're trying to replicate. So giving our birds a really big feed one day of the week uh, and then the next day they won't need any food. And you said obviously that you fly them about generally six out of seven days of the week. What's the importance of ensuring that they have those flights throughout the day? Well, obviously out there in the wild, you have to fly to survive, find food, find mate, find shelter. Uh, So we are just ensuring that we're keeping them active and having them fly as much as possible in zoological care. We will try and fly the birds every day to ensure that they maintain peak physical fitness, of course. Yeah, nice. And obviously you spoke a little bit earlier about barking owls being one of your favourites. You also work with kites and eagles too. So do you have a particular favourite species to work with? I think that my answer changes to this every time that I'm asked, but I really am enjoying working with kites at the moment. I think that they are very intelligent and you can really see the cogs turning when you're doing a training session with them. So I'm going to say kites are my favourite to train. (laughs) And then I guess so out of the species that you work with, are they generally pretty easy to train or do you find them quite difficult? And if you do, how come? Well, raptors are very food focused and very intelligent, which makes it easier, that's for sure. I think that they have this very high food drive. So in terms of training, there's a lot of interest in the sessions, that's for sure. And so 
like I guess you said, food is definitely a primary reinforcer. Do you think that any of the birds utilize secondary reinforcers at all? Or do you think it's just primary generally with these birds of prey? Primary generally. Uh, there has been moments where like throughout the years, I've forgotten my food or something and I've had a barking owl come over that's particularly tactile and given them a little head scratch between flights. So that's only worst case scenario. Generally, it will be food. Nice. Now, you obviously work in a raptor's position, which is generally very sought after. So do you have any tips for anyone who is looking to gain experience and possibly get into a role just like yours? Well, as we always say, this industry is particularly hard to get into, but there are a few different avenues you can go down and volunteering is a great one. So volunteering at different zoos and sanctuaries, uh, even if they don't necessarily let you be part of the raptor section, there's different ways to help out by helping with crowd control at bird shows and that kind of thing. So even that is a great avenue because you can be standing there letting visitors into the show and listening to all the facts, seeing the birds fly, seeing their different hunting techniques and flying techniques and just getting a bit more understanding of how a bird show works or how that raptor training works. So volunteering is always a great way to get your foot in the door, that's for sure. I love how we heard from Danielle a couple of podcasts ago and she said that she literally started in the car park and has been able to progress too. So it doesn't always need to be directly with animals, but just being around it, you're going to start learning and developing your skill set and give yourself more opportunities to get into the field, hey? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you just get your face known and you've got to say yes to anything. Um, in my early years, I was even part of the cleaning team. So I did the cleaning team in the morning, doing the bin run, cleaning toilets, blowing pods. And then I was doing koalas and this and that. So you just say yes. If someone says, hey, would you mind doing this? You're like, yep, sure, cool. Whatever you want me to do, I will do it. Yeah, I think that's such a good a good attitude to have and will hopefully set you up to succeed for sure. Now, if people are listening that might not necessarily be in close proximity to zoos or be able to volunteer, is there any other ways that you can give like tips towards by getting a little bit more experience? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I understand that that's not always an opportunity for everyone. Uh, sometimes there might be rehab centers in your area, so different uh, raptor rehab areas, maybe even carers as well that you can just reach out and see if you can help them out. When I was younger, I did a lot of helping out with the RSPCA. So I was 14, I couldn't drive, and I was a rescuer with the RSPCA. So my dad and I picked up possums, birds, macropods, all over Brisbane. So not only did my rescue skills improve in this time, but I got to liaise with different carers. And I met carers that I still am in contact with today who even said, oh, Tessa, this is when I was 14. Oh, you should work at Lone Pine and that kind of thing. So there's lots of different people you can meet and um, by volunteering and reaching out to people, it's just going to open up more and more doors. And what a, like what an incredible skill set to be able to gain from being a wildlife carer too or even assisting the carers to understand a little bit more about the medical side of things and I'm sure you develop your nutritional skill set through that too. Now, you are uh, still a carer now, Tess, and if anyone does follow Tess on social media, you will see that she posts a hell of a lot of adorable Flying Fox content. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how you were able to get into that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I touched on before that I was a rescuer when I was younger. Um, With this carer that I built a bit of a relationship with, I helped her out chopping up uh, fruit and veggies for the possums, helping feed milk out to the baby macropods and had a love for these animals and trialed it myself. So I did a possum course and a macropod uh, course for hen-raised individuals and I did enjoy it and it was not until I saw hen-raising flying foxes that that really took my heart and that was exactly what I wanted to get into. So I've been a carer for flying foxes for about five or six years now and I absolutely love it. Yeah, I'm very jealous because all the photos that you post and send are adorable. What is What is actually involved, I guess, in being a flying fox carer? Well, you have to be vaccinated. So that's the first step and join a reputable bat group. So that's the very first thing. It is something that will take a lot of time. As you can imagine, any baby animal needing hand raising, it's going to be a lot of time and a lot of care uh, put into that animal. So for flying foxes in the early stages, they'll need uh, milk every four hours or so. And I'm just really lucky that my workplace has been very open-minded and help me be able to have my flying foxes at my workplace and and feed them. So we have a lovely wildlife hospital at Lone Pine. So that's where the little flying foxes will be during the day. And then on our morning tea breaks and lunches, we're able to go in and feed them. Wearing PPE, of course, we're right there at the window, um, feeding them in front of the, the visitors. So it's a bit of a win-win. Uh, we get to do it at work and the visitors get to see this amazing experience as well. How good that Lone Pine is so open-minded about that because uh, I can imagine that's such a great experience for guests to be able to see, you know, the impacts that these animals have and learn about them in our ecosystems because flying foxes are so important but then also see the trouble that they can come into in the wild. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing, the seeing firsthand this little orphan held by a keeper whose mum was electrocuted, dad was, sorry, dad, mum was uh, hit by a car, all this kind of stuff that happens to flying foxes, bushfires, you name it. So it's it's amazing to have the visitors see it firsthand. Yeah. And, and I guess definitely here in Southeast Queensland, we are home to a lot of flying foxes. Do you have any tips or tricks, I guess, for anyone that's listening that might come across one or, or ways that they can prevent them from getting into trouble in the wild? Yeah, look, I think the most important thing is if you ever find a bat in distress, never pick it up. You do have to be vaccinated. You do have to be trained. So just call your local bat rescue and they'll sort it for you. I think we often see flying foxes electrocuted on power lines. It is getting to that time of year now that often those flying foxes will have pups. It's remarkable, but I think it's 90% of the time that baby will survive. So the electrical current will pass through the mum and the baby will survive. So if you ever do see a deceased bat on a power line, just have a bit of an ear out, like have a listen around, see if you can hear a baby um, or even look up and see if you can still see one attached. Of course, if you find one in the bushes below or still see it up there, uh, call your local bat rescue group and they'll come along and um, safely secure it. Yeah, nice. And I guess tips I guess to avoid them getting tangled up because I know fruit fruit netting is always a big problem with these animals hey yeah absolutely it's pretty easy to purchase wildlife friendly netting these days there's lots of nasty stuff out there that animals will get entangled in but you need to purchase the stuff that you can't poke a finger through so it's really fine if you can poke a finger through it is no good 
that's a really easy thing you can do to ensure that there's no flying foxes entangled in your fruit trees. Now, it's pretty obvious that you absolutely love doing that and it's clear from the amount of um, education that you do with flying foxes. Why do you love it so much? I want to know about it. Well, they are just so sweet. Uh, I feel like if you to be in a little flying fox's presence, you'll see they are actually just sweet little dogs with wings. <laughs> um, and for me, I'm always trying to think of ways that I can contribute to conservation. And there's nothing more rewarding than knowing this little pup, this flying fox, who's come in after being electrocuted, like I mentioned, attacked by a dog, entangled in fruit netting, bushfire, you name it, will be release successfully back out into the wild and pollinate so many trees and spread 60,000 seeds a night. That's one flying fox can do that. And that's conservation to me. And that's actually doing something. So my advice, if you're a zookeeper or someone who's in a position that does have the time and their facilities to hand raise a flying fox, do it. You won't regret it. It's the best thing you'll ever do. It sounds like such a rewarding process and I'm hoping that you might get a couple of flying foxes this season and we can keep track of how the little bubs are doing in your care. Yes, absolutely. There'll be many updates. Oh, I'm excited. Now, Tess, obviously, you know, normally with our guests, we do social media questions, but this is a little bit more of a last minute thing. So we decided to do something a little bit different. And I asked a couple of the girls at work if they had any questions for you, being that they are very marine animal based. They didn't, they had lots of fun questions for birds. So are you keen if I get into those? Yes. Once again, I'm nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, question number one is how do you navigate when a bird flies off? Well, That's actually pretty easy. Uh, All our free flight raptors wear tracking devices or transmitters. So in terms of peace of mind, when you're clipping this tracker on and letting your bird free fly, there is that little bit of a safety element that you know that whatever happens, pretend that they got chased off by minor birds, a wild bird of prey spooked them or a big gust of wind blew them over the fence, you are going to be able to find them. Uh, So that definitely adds to the element of free flying them and navigating them if something goes wrong. So today, for example, uh, he didn't go out of sight, but our barking owl had to fly over a kangaroo and he didn't see the kangaroo and he got the fright of his life and he took off to the roof. So we were able to see him the whole time, but pretend he took off uh, into the sanctuary and we couldn't spot him. We do have that safety measure of the tracking devices. So that's very helpful. (laughs) Yeah. And how exactly do they work in regards to being able to track an animal? So they're just tiny little transmitters that will only weigh a couple of grams. And we're able to attach a little clip to their tail and they'll only wear it when they're free flying. So we can just clip it on easily and they're conditioned for this. And raptors are a little bit different to parrots. They're not as uh, invested in touching things on their tails. So it's easy in that respect with a little bit of conditioning and a bit of time. They wear a tracker and it's only for their free flight too. So they're not too bothered and we're able to locate them, like I said, if need be. How cool that they're able to engage in such crucial free flying, but also to be able to have that safety kind of reassurance at the same time, which sounds really cool. Absolutely. And there are special different transmitters you can purchase as well. So we have a GPS one that we use for our peregrines in particular, and it will locate 
obviously their location, but will tell us straight to our iPhone, their speed, their height and that kind of thing. So on a windy day, we've got on our phone, our Peregrine Falcons flying 135 kilometers an hour and it'll show us their flight path straight to their phone. So, sorry, straight to our phone. So it's it's very cool. It's amazing technology, that's for sure. Wow, that's that's so cool to hear about. Now, question number two was, can you build relationships with the raptors? Yeah, definitely. So depending on the species, some might be a little bit more uh, open-minded than others, or it can depend if they were hand-reared or not, but you definitely can build relationships. And some species, it's more important than others. So um, eagles, kites, falcons, I have generally found that they need to know that keeper a little bit more and have a bit more of a rapport with them before they fly them or, or will be stepped up by that trainer. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And then I guess finally, so the last question we had was, is baiting used a lot for bird of, bird, bird of prey training? Sorry. And if it is, is there any any other options in regards to training or is it something that you're moving away for, from in the industry? It definitely is used and it is something that uh, can be moved away from in certain situations and other times it's absolutely necessary. Uh, for example, all our birds will fly to a leather glove. That's their cue when they see that the visual cue is for them to head on over to that glove. And that's because I have a rapport with them and they see me and I've got the same cue consistently every day. However, if I've got a visitor from the audience coming and they've got the straighty 180 awkward arm and they look awkward and I was like, oh, okay, um, I'm going to put that a little bit of food on there and bait them towards that glove just as a bit of um, an extra reassurance that that is their cue. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess you're just building up that history for that new trainer and then once they've gathered that, that little bit more history and that re- more reinforcement, then they'll be able to remove that baiting stimulus. Absolutely. Well, Tess, this has been so much fun. I love hearing about raptors any day of the week and especially about your beautiful flying foxes. And like I said, I'm excited to follow along for what you might have this season too. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk about bats and birds. I love it. So thank you so much, Daisy. Yeah, of course. And Tess, next week is a bit of an exciting week as we are celebrating International Zookeeper Day and we have something that's really fun planned. We reached out to a few different keepers across the globe and we've done a bit of a Q&A with some of them for our socials. So you guys are going to get the chance to learn a little bit more about keepers from all around the world, which is exciting. Can't wait. It's going to be great. Yes. Well, again, thank you so much, Tess. It is always a pleasure chatting to you and I'm very lucky to co-host this podcast with you. You're so passionate and this has been so much fun. So I'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, Daisy. Bye. Bye. 